Straight out of the heart of Texas, here come the students of conflict, helping you become a better Malifaux player and reach the top of the podium, one game at a time. Welcome to Students of Conflict. We're Clay, Nick, and Doug. Hello. Hello. And we are trying to become better Malifaux players, leveling ourselves and hopefully leveling others up as well. Um, we do that by interviewing top third players from the Lone Star Conference, playing in Malifaux tournaments across the U.S., though mostly in Texas. We are not trying to capture their entire tournament journey here. We just want to take an in-depth look at a single game from each guest. What were the key decisions that they made before the game, during the game, and now that they're looking back at the game, what were the things that they learned that they can pass on to others? Our basic format is we interview the guests all at once, just as soon as possible after the tournament, where it's all fresh in their minds and we can get some good cross-flow between the guests. And then rather than publishing one long marathon podcast, we break it up, releasing one individual podcast per guest, helping people level up one game at a time. Tonight, we're speaking with Devin and Carlo. Hello. What's up? Hello, Devin and Carlo. These guys came in fourth and third at that. April Malifaux Monthly Tournament held in Houston on the 8th of April. We're going to be releasing our discussions with them as episodes 6A and 6B. Let's get going. All right. Yeah. With me today, I've got Devin. How are you doing today, Devin? I'm doing great. Welcome to the podcast. First time you're on here. Excited to have you here. Uh, something we like to do with our first time guests is we like to ask, you know, Kind of what is your background in tabletop gaming and how did you get into Malifaux originally? Uh, well, I originally got into Malifaux uh, due to just having to kill some time. When I moved here from uh, Florida, I was in a relationship I was trying to stay in and, uh, you know, needed to fill that time. So my brother introduced me to 40K. Uh, those armies were way too large. I was like, I just don't want to play this. So he uh, eventually showed me Malifaux. And I got really into that. Um, started playing with the uh, the old meta and 2E uh, back when that was around here. Uh, Doug was a huge part of that then too. Uh, you know, played with him a lot. Um, yeah, but that's that's kind of what got me into it. I haven't really played much else. I like strategy board games. Played tons of board games. Played a lot of D and D. Um, but yeah, I really like the tactical aspect of uh, gameplay Malifaux provides. Oh, cool. So we like to break the ice, and we got a fun icebreaker question uh, as well. What's your favorite terrain board you've ever played on, in real life or in Vassal, and why? So I really like height. I like elevation in the boards, and I, I think that Malifaux's original buildings actually provide that. I, I don't like the building quality of them so much. I, I like them to be a little bit more solid, but I do like the, the, the shape and the you know, aesthetic it provides. And some of those that you can find online that are like completed out, they just look amazing. Um, so I'm going to exclude Doug stuff because we all know that Doug stuff is amazing. So I'm going to go with the next stuff after that. And uh, I'm also aware we got some Vassal stuff going on here. Um, but I actually just jumped into that uh, today thanks to uh, one of the guys on one of the servers. So um, I appreciate your time if you're listening, um, Makina. Yeah, I think that was uh, Dixon from yeah. Right Wire. Shout out to Dixon. Yeah, so I appreciate that uh, that time you uh, set out to, to show me uh, how to use that. But yeah, no, um, I really like uh, the terrain that's at the tournaments. It's uh, it's really nice to see that um, that little template that's uh, to the side that kind of lets you know exactly what's going on. I really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, actually, terrain is one of my favorite parts about Malifaux, if I'm being honest. Heck yeah. Yeah. 
quick question that uh two e train you're talking about is that the uh plastcraft elevated walkways and yeah it's the uh it's the one that it kind of comes out to be like a giant t when it's all put together yeah and, that's uh, a that great terrain modular to a degree i really like that one specifically um mm-hmm. and actually i've been putting together this like cemetery uh terrain it's got like this whole walled in section and i was thinking about like how do I make it where people can like see over this wall? And I was like, oh, wait, I can take this source stuff that doesn't have like the openings, put those along the side of it. And then you got like this walkway that can come on up so you can still shoot into that pit. So you can't like hide from people in it because, you know, I, I want to try to make whatever board that I, I put together myself uh, balanced in, in every way. Like, you know, I would I, I want to try to make it where I'm happy to play on any corner, any side, anywhere. So we're working on a uh, graveyard board. If only there was someone who had, you know, gravestones. With all of the, with names of lots of people from the local meta. Ooh, I actually haven't played on that one yet. I try to cycle things out for the tournaments. So, Devin, uh, which round are you talking about from the April tournament, and why? So, I'm actually going to be comparing round one and round three. Um, I know that might sound strange, but I was actually thinking about it. I was only going to talk about round one, but when I started to reflect on it, I realized I actually made a super stupid decision and uh, when I corrected that decision in game three, uh, where I played the same master, same, like, well, almost same list, I, I, I changed things up in round three. And I, I lost eight to one in round one, but I won eight to one in round three. Uh, it was only that simple switch. And the thing is, is, I came in with a game plan, and that was the list I played in round three. And round one, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I just got to the table. I was like, hey, this plan I had in my head for an entire week. Yeah, let's just throw it out the window and do this instead. I don't know what I was thinking, but compare why I made, like, I, I guess thoughts as to why I made that decision, how it affected me in round one, and what the plan was in game three, and how well I was able to get that to work. However, I don't think that would work as well on really experienced players, um, because it is a defense trigger shenanigan that is seen from a mile away. Um, so, Okay, now, what was the biggest lesson you learned in round one? Um and obviously, it sounds like you took that lesson and then you applied it in round three. So yes. what was that big lesson? So obviously, stick to your plan. Uh, like I, I thought about the list. I, I take some time. You know, kids go to bed at eight and I'm usually up until like one, two in the morning. So I'll spend some time really thinking about what it is that I want to do, how I could do it with certain models within my faction. And then, you know, what the unpack would be, what turn one would look like and what I'm expecting for turn two. And, uh, you know, with all that thought going into it, you'd think I'd, I'd value it when I got to the tournament, but nope. Um, I guess I, I got nervous being on a recorded table. Uh, I guess that's just an excuse, though, because, I mean, I'm used to, you know, being in sight, you know, used to be a teacher and everything. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I guess comparing comparing round one to round three, round one, actually, another thing that I learned was stick to the plan, even when it comes to models. Because part of the reason why I switched the list was to have the showgirl run a uh, breakthrough. And for whatever reason, I had her stop in turn two to stick to a um, covert operation strategy instead of just having her run off. She would have been fine. She, I, I had her all blocked up. But like, you know, I had the ability to go do that with no problem. But by keeping her there, she got killed next round, which eliminated any option for that uh, scheme. And... Uh... I'm I'm sorry. I wanted to go ahead and jump in uh, just because you mentioned a recording, a recorded table there, Devin. And uh, I just want to say that uh, Heroic Scale Gamers has been, oh yeah, uh, they've been streaming our stuff. Uh, super fantastic. This was not one of the streamed games, but uh, just this last tournament, uh, 
Nathan had who from Heroic Scale Gamers had set up another table. So we had two tables, one being recorded and streamed, and one being recorded, and it's a Patreon only table. And so yeah. if anybody wants to watch this uh, brutal massacre, uh, we will have a link to the show notes. Yeah, you watch me make bad decisions. Go ahead and pay that Patreon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a uh, uh, we'll we will have that. Uh, uh, the link to the Patreon in the show notes is something that uh, uh, Nate was just trying out this time and uh, wanted to go ahead and mention it here just because you brought it up. So recorded, yeah. but you wouldn't have seen it on stream, uh, dear listener. Thanks. <laughs> in the spirit of the student of conflict, which is what this whole pal- uh, podcast is about, even though you lost eight to one, I feel like since you're about to talk about it, you always learn more by getting your butt whooped than you do by winning. Absolutely. No, in 2E, I played against Travis all the time, and all I did was lose. Like, that's all it was. It just lost, lost. Like, I I must have played, like, 100 games against that guy, maybe one twice. And I think one of those, he let me, and the other one, I I remember he was was a little upset. I don't remember exactly what happened in the game, but he was not happy that I won. But I have not won very many times off of Travis, but I'm used to getting beat up by him, and I'm traditionally actually a 10-thunders player. So it's a strange decision that I made to to play Arcanist in this one. Um, I don't really know why. I was just, hey, let's try something new. But yeah, he, he trained me up. I'm used to losing. <laughs> that actually kind of sockets us into, leads us right into the next question that we had here for you. So you said you're normally a 10 Thunders player. This uh, tournament, you decided to play Arcanists. Why was that? Um, well, I, uh, I've been, <laughs> so the nightmare models, you know, have been coming out and, uh, I really don't like the original, uh, model art for Mei Feng. So I've actually stayed away from her for most of like, I've actually never really played Mei Feng up until recently. So I was like, Hey, let's get these models. I got the nightmare models are real happy about it and, uh, put them all together and then started messing with them and then realized how much I liked her. But then I was like, I'm actually a little bit more used to Colette because I played Colette a little bit in 2E. So I was like, maybe I should play Colette instead. And she was, Colette was actually the first box that I bought getting back into 3E. Um, That's cool. I was like, maybe I'll just expand my Arcanist collection and just let my 10 Thunders be what it is. But then when I saw how 3E divided up their purchasing, like with the title boxes and whatnot, I was like, eh, maybe, never mind. I'm so close to having everything for 10 Thunders. Let's just fill that out. And then maybe I'll move into something different. Um, but yeah, no, Mei Feng was the start. I was like, hey, let's do that. Um, and then I also thought that, if I got tired of playing Colette or I needed to switch up, then, you know, I could do that. I actually did switch to Mayfang around too, but I had to buy. So, you know, it was just kind of messing around with that. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was pretty much let's play Mayfang as an Arcanist. Cause I felt like she did a little bit better there. Um, but after a little bit of reflection, I don't know, maybe I think she's a little bit better than 10 Thunders, but I don't know. I haven't tried. That's on the list, on the list to do. All right. So round one going into round one. Why did you choose uh, Colette for this round? And uh, kind of what other all was your game plan when it came to crew building? So when it came to crew building, I I had this thought of pulling this uh, shenanigan with Angelica's uh, defense trigger. So I'm talking about Angelica Duran's uh, defense trigger is uh, get off the stage. Um, for anybody who's unaware, if you have a mask uh, in, in it, uh, you can place the attacking model in the base contact with a scheme marker within 12 of this model. She's also got an ability called Herald, which marches her forward six inches at the start of the game. So with pushing her forward, using Dorian's bonus action, which allows anybody in six to be able to move another two inches, and then uh, Cassandra's um, upstaging and Angelica's uh, tactical action, which allows somebody to move five inches, you can get 
uh, Angelica fairly far across the board. And that can be pretty tempting for an inexperienced or sometimes even experienced players to shoot at that, you know, like, Hey, if you feel like you can get a high enough number, you know, you're going to feel that. So I always make sure when I'm playing this list that I have a high number mask in my hand to start. And if not, at least a high number. So then that way I can, uh, soul stone if need be. Although in this list, I, I didn't have that ability on her, uh, given that she's an enforcer. Um, but that was the original plan. Go on in, do this nastiness where turn two, I mean, um, activation two, Dorian puts down a, a, a ski marker right next to him after pushing everybody a little bit more forward. Hopefully somebody takes a shot at Angelica. I, you know, win, pull that model in, and then just everybody spends first turn just devastating that model that hopefully my opponent really valued. So, because um, we didn't uh, specifically say what it is, what is it that Cassandra's trigger does? Well, I think you mean Angelica. Sorry, Angelica, the uh, get off the stage trigger. What is it that it does for uh, those who aren't playing? Yes. So um, it specifically reads defense mask, get off the stage, enemy only. Place the attacking model into base contact with a scheme marker within 12 inches of this model. It's a 12 um, aura. So what I do is that Dorian activates first, pushes everybody forward a little bit, and then drops the scheme marker. Angelica goes second, and she nimble walks keeps herself within range of that scheme marker to pull it forward just a little bit. So that way you got more room to charge um, when, and if this shenanigan, you know, works. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of a kidnap that nobody's really expecting. Nobody really thinks of performer as a kidnap crew and you've got a 12 inch, you know, a a huge, a huge uh, uh, range that you can kidnap somebody in. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing how versatile, not versatile, uh, how uh, mobile this this group is. It, it, it's it's another thing that I liked about Colette is that Colette's Presto Changeo could kind of do the same thing if Angelica dies or, um, you know, it didn't really work out the first turn. If I'm still trying to do that in round two, then I still have that ability with Presto Changeo on the original Colette, which is actually part of the reason why I chose her over the uh, title. I mean, uh, yeah, over the title. Okay. Is it Easter Angelica though? Oh uh, no! <laughs> it's one of those models I want to get. I know with the uh, the recent sale, I almost picked her up. There was a question from uh, Lokabiri on Discord asking about uh, how did the drop of Colette two impact your choices in um, terms of crew building. I think he answered that pretty well as far as going with the mobility and the uh, Presto Changeo shenanigans Mm -hmm. yeah that was more of my focus when it came to this specific list and uh i actually went into this tournament just with the thought of hey three games let's have fun don't even worry about winning and you know that's why i was playing this weird list to see if it could work out um and having three attempts to do it it's a good way to be yeah uh another we got another question from a local here i'm assuming that they want to you know get to know colette a little bit better there what uh personally for you was the most important key model in your crew building and why? Uh, when it comes to the crew building, I actually think Harada, uh, which I know there's there's, there's going to be some words coming soon, but Harada is, uh, is actually <laughs> the key model for me when it comes to building uh, either of these lists that I played in round one or three. But yeah, Harada's got a lot of versatility. He can he can do a lot in, in a single turn, and he can change what he does each turn as well, so... So you did um, bring Harada and Dorian Crow. So uh, Loki Beery had asked, you know, 
Dorian Crow or Harada? I guess the answer is both. <laughs> yes, it kind of is both. Uh, they they work so I think they work well together with their bubbles, and if you march them forward together, um, I'm thinking about uh, his uh, Harada's bonus actions first choice. I, I can't pronounce I think it. It's Nagiri or something. Yeah, that one. That one. Yeah, uh, the one that adds positives or uh, yeah. yeah. That, that's the one that I, I typically end up choosing, but you know, sometimes if, if need be, I'll, I'll switch it up um, to the scheme marker one. Uh, I don't have that model specifically in front of me. I'm looking at it right now for you. <laughs> uh, Nagiri is the positive one, and the scheme marker is oh god, Nagarahu. Yeah, I'm sorry to anybody I just offended, but yeah. We tried. We tried our best. But yeah, no, this model is is great. I mean, uh, a lot of the a lot of the thought of why I would suck somebody back behind my line was based around these two models. Because you know, if I'm spending the next activations once I get somebody successfully behind lines to activate Harada, get that up, and then have every like the the Corfi, uh, not the, each each of the Corfis that I brought, have them charge individually. It just I, I have a feeling that whatever it is I'd get behind there is probably dead before the end of round one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that when I run into Harada on the other side of the table, he tends to be a model that is surprising. And if you don't deal with him, he's going to deal with you in a very unpleasant way. Yeah, Harada yeah. is definitely a card you read. And uh, like I, like like uh, Devin was saying, the the hatred with me towards Arata. <laughs> it's very high. More in Outcast. Sorry, more in uh, in uh, Arcanists than in uh, Explorers because uh, Soulstone Cash just makes him really, really annoying with the fact that he can cheat with your cards and also reduce the damage from it. <laughs> yeah, I know you were talking about a, uh, a surprising number of points saved in a game. Yeah, yeah there's another. There's It's one of those heroic scale gamers from the Lone Star GT in October last year. I was playing against Rob, and uh, I think we, we counted a 21 damage that Harada prevented from uh, two, two, yeah. Vicks, two Vicks and Taylor. Jeez. God bless Soulstone Cash. Oh, man. Well, I mean, Soulstone Cash is great because there's a lot of models in that uh, in Arcanists where they maybe they're a little bit squishy, but if they got Soulstones, they're like, ha, I don't care. Like uh, Kojo or the um, Ice Golem. Both emissary? of those. Oh, Emissary. I mean, yeah. Those ones, you know, Ice Golem, even though he's got a crazy amount of um, shields on him, that only reduces it to, you know, one. So you plink, 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 and you're you take a swing at the golem, he's going to get hit. If he can stone that off, stone that's plus a, two shields, you do have to do minimum four damage to literally touch him. Let's uh, not uh, forget Elijah. Oh, God, yeah. Good old Borgman. Him being able to use soul stones is brutal. Now, and I wanted to ask on that just with the list, that because five soul stones, and you did bring a soul stone miner, but that, yeah, you only had a cache of five. And so I was mm-hmm. like... It, you know, obviously it worked, but is that about right uh, with models with Solstice Cash? So it's it's a little on the lower end. I don't tend to like to run less than six because uh, how I look at it is that I want to be able to spend four uh, on my turns, just getting cards. Because typically I'm unhappy with my hands. It's rare that I get a hand. I'm like, yes, 
Um, and then also just damage mitigation. I'd like to be able to do that at least three to four times as well. So I, I like to leave the house with seven or eight. Uh, I'll, I will with six. Five was uncomfortable. But I felt with the minor, I I would be okay. But then for anybody who watches this game, you uh, you watch me like massively underuse the minor. Like I, I think I, I miss getting the stone on two of the turns. He doesn't do anything, just sits behind oh, the lines. No. I forget to move him forward because he's buried and like sitting off the table and it's the first time I've played with it. There's a lot of things I did with that first round that just don't make any sense. Like if I explained out everything, you'd be like, what are you doing? How many points, how many stones is the minor? So stone minor six, yeah. So just like the just like the prospector, because I'd like to bring prospectors a lot, which serve a similar purpose in in outcasts. You basically get that model for free if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I started thinking a little bit lower. I, I I thought about that as a two cost model, but I knew that wasn't right. And then also, since Harada has soulstone cash, you are going to make more soulstones. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Innately, you're going to have auras to build stones. I think this gives a good lead in there. Uh, we have not discussed what was in your crew. So what was your crew list? Okay, so the crew list that you'd see if you go to Heroic Gaming and, and pay to watch me uh, embarrass myself. Uh, <laughs> the original Colette, uh, her three dubs, um, Harada with Soulstone Cash, Dorian with Soulstone Cash, uh, two Corfies and a Soulstone Miner, and then the woefully underused uh, Showgirl with Magical Training. And then that means that I had a pool of five soul stones to be able to use how I saw fit. Rob, however, brought 10, brought the Dreamer, and then he had like the Bandersnatch, uh, Serena, Widow Weaver, Daydream, a couple Insidious Madnesses. Uh, he came prepared, and then he just outactivated me. He, he summoned so much in, in that game that I just, he was killing things off. I wasn't focusing on attacking because I was just trying to run my stuff. Uh, and he just uh, eventually just like buried me under the ground. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll just uh, give the a quick rundown as to what the pool was. It was standard deployment, covert operations. We had uh, breakthrough, assassinate, sabotage, load them up, and in your face. So, what schemes did you select? Um, I chose breakthrough and load them up. Okay, and it looks like Rob chose breakthrough and in your face. Okay. So I learned I learned this about Colette, by the way, because I didn't know that this was possible because it's not something you think about immediately. Like, I mean, here, let me get a look at you guys because I want to ask you a question, including you, Devin. Uh, when you see Hidden Martyrs as a scheme, how many of y'all just immediately think, that's I'm taking that scheme, nine times out of ten? Depends on what else is in the um, the pool. I, I That's one that had been a favorite for a long time for me. But then if I'm playing into someone who just refuses to kill my models? Yeah, yes, of course. Like if you're playing against like a model like Nelly or something that, you know, likes to play games without even hitting your model sometimes, right? Right. Uh, but what I was alluding to was, so I don't know if you knew this, Devin, but because uh, you have your totems that can kill themselves to do a lot of damage, but then they come back, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if you kill a model that has hidden martyrs with one of your doves, it doesn't count. Because it's insignificant, so it doesn't count for schemes and strategies. That had been done to me, and I was like, wow, I never thought about that. So then I started looking at models that are insignificant that I can use to kill obvious hidden martyrs targets. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I didn't think about that. I do normally use the birds to charge, at least when I'm using the the original one. It's like swarm them in and uh, you know, make them difficult. I, I rarely use annoying. Lo- loopholes! 
<laughs> I'm not sure that actually works. I mean, it, it, I, we actually checked it because Rob did it to me. And so, uh, hidden martyrs. So, okay. At the end of the turn, if exactly one of the chosen models was killed by an enemy controlled model this turn. Okay. And it hasn't been replaced with a model of higher cost. Gain one BP. Hmm. And if if the dove kills it, the dove is ignored for schemes and strategies. So even though it is an enemy, it is ignored for schemes. At least after checking the ruling on it. Yeah, I'm. I, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. But it is. This is this is one where we can we can certainly check and get a note from future Doug or and, and just for listeners that hidden murders was not in this pool. So while it's interesting, not relevant to game one. <laughs> I'm looking at the uh, wording on it there because I know that there's sometimes where it's the, if a model is just killed, that's all that matters. But, right. Huh. The old reckoning was that way, right? A model was killed. Even if it was killed by a insignificant model or condition, it was, it, it still counted in your favor. Well, like cursed objects. Though it is if a model is killed so that it could be killed by a friendly. Let me pull that one up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so like cursed object, if a model is killed, doesn't ha- it doesn't matter who it was killed by. So if that model is killed, then it gets discarded. So it can be by a condition, by a friendly, by an enemy, etc. But that hidden martyrs, that's... Hmm, I gotta look that up. Do it. Do it and confirm it for me. But let's move on, because I've, I've, I've probably uh, distracted from the main point. It's like, huh... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, that, that's a. I mean, I, I, I have my jackalope who loves to kill models that it should not be able to sometimes. There you go. But that's an interesting one. Future Doug will have to come back and talk to you. <laughs> yeah. And right now we'll hear that screech noise, and hopefully Future <laughs> Doug will have this shit figured out. But this doesn't seem right. Future Doug here. We have confirmed that since insignificant models are ignored for the purposes of strats and schemes in every way, killing a hidden martyr with an insignificant model does indeed deny that reveal point. So, uh, murder your enemies with doves and jackalopes for fun and profit. Where was I? What were we talking about? Who are you people? What are you doing in my house? But we were, I think we were at why I was choosing the schemes I chose. Yes. Why did you choose the schemes you chose? <laughs> so um, originally Breakthrough is one that I, I find hard not to take because most of my natural way of playing is to move through you. Like I want to try to get on the other side of your board, even if it's not really an intent in the game. Um, but that's back in my like kill a foe focus, you know, back when I originally started playing. Um, and load them up felt easy um, with all of the um, like presto changeo nonsense that I knew I was going to be doing. Because um, I move uh, a lot of people around uh, using the birds, put them in position. And then... I did load them up with uh, scheme markers then. Yes. Yeah, load them up with scheme markers. Yeah. Because I know that with presto changeo, you got to place a scheme marker to then move the model. So, uh, yeah. And then if Hidden Martyrs wasn't here, I'd actually try to use it as a decoy. So to answer Carlo's question, kind of circle back to that real fast. Yeah, I, I tend to use that as like a, hey, I want you to think I took that. I see. So, but yeah, Breakthroughs, Breakthroughs is a fun one. And actually Load em Up I, is actually one of my favorites. Because um, when I started looking at Mei Feng, Mei Feng was like, oh, look at all this, like, you know, walking forge. 
you load them up so easy. Like it's so incredibly easy. And then uh, Chase, actually, he's one of our newer players. He started playing Euripides and he chose to load him up on a game that we were playing. And I, I didn't even realize how many ice pillars I had so close to the center line. I was like, oh, and you're creating more. Like you're, you've definitely got that. You had to have chosen that because you just got so many ice pillars. Oh, especially Euripides too. It's the, hey, you got all those nice markers down over there. Boom, 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 boom. Because they can drop, you know, a crazy number of them in just one go. And Colette can almost do that in two activations on her own with her uh, attack action, Presto Changer, right? Just being yeah. able to drop markers mm-hmm. within yeah, eight inches. And... On the side of the board, because it doesn't say anything about targeting one model per activation. So you can you can just cycle people over. You can put, you know, you got to make sure they're spread out, I think. They got to be at least like, what, two inches away for load them up? Right, uh, one inch. One inch, yeah. So you got to make sure at least you're putting them on the other side of the model. But yeah, if you plan it out right, you can make sure you get that in a single turn. If you know uh, uh, Colette goes last, yeah, you can you could be like that's not even a thing on the radar, and then all of a sudden, boom, I've got it. Well, and you could also have had your other uh, models because you've got a lot of uh, don't mind me available. Yeah. Hey, they can drop one, and then you can press their chains chain Joe, and got all kinds of stuff like that, which. uh, Works out really nicely. Yeah. And then in the round three list, I actually have a Cassandra who naturally pulls one if she's within three inches of it. She'll throw that three inches forward. So that worked out quite well in uh, uh, what's called moving around for round three. Uh, I know we want to focus on round one, but yeah. I'm also just wanting to say that it's really, really nice that you're playing Colette because mm-hmm. with all the other stuff that's topping the Arcanist stuff right now with all the Hoffmans and the Damians and all that there's so many masters and arcanists that don't get enough play that are really really cool and colette has always been one of my favorite arcanist masters because she's so unique in that faction mm-hmm. yeah I, I kind of agree yeah she was one of my favorites uh she kind of stood out in the arcanist as being like the oddball like why are you here with everybody else that's in it like what <laughs> and you know I, I was just drawn to her i it's weird because like her original model build is not flattering at all but they really did her justice in three well, I think she honestly isn't just unique within the game. She's unique as far as really any game I've ever played. I can't think of any other um, game where there is a leader or faction or unit that really is the, we're a bunch of showgirls and we're performing and we also smuggle shit on the side. We're, we're doing actual magic, yeah. Could Could I ask you, Devin... To, to talk through just kind of how you use Presto Changeo, that there's some listeners I suspect that have never even seen Colette uh, on the table. Oh, yeah, because so. yeah, there's still a lot of focus on, on title Colette. I mean, don't get me wrong, she's great. And I actually, uh, talking to uh, Dixon, um, I was able to figure out more of the value in the title version. But yeah, her, her Presto Changeo, I, I will typically use it. I'll throw uh, a couple of the birds forward. And to get them in the position, and then I'll presto changeo uh, somebody who hasn't activated yet. Typically, if I'm doing everything right and sticking to my plan like I did in round three, I'm throwing Angelica or Cassandra forward, and then marching Dorian and Harada forward behind them, hopefully. Um, I haven't thrown Dorian forward yet. Um, I know that Dorian isn't exactly the uh, toughest model, so um, it always makes me nervous throwing him forward. I mean, like, he's got decent stats, but I know if you put him too far forward, people will start targeting him, so. Uh, but, yeah, no, typically I'll do that. I'll throw my, my valuable models forward, have them do it, and then in the next round, maybe I'll pull them back. Uh, you know, it all depends on what is needed for the, the scheme pool, like what I chose, 
and uh, if it's like a kill heavy game, because um, I, I really uh, enjoy games where neither one of us are trying to kill one another. We're just both trying to get out of one another's way and be in one another's way. I, I like those games so much more than the, the you know, kill types. Uh, but don't get me wrong. It's actually the, the aggro uh, versions of the game or why I got into it. Because like Mizaki was my first master and she is super aggressive. Uh, it doesn't matter what the scheme pool is. It just seems to be she's going to go kill stuff. So. Oh, and so uh, it, because uh, this was actually something that when you and I played uh, our uh, a game leading up to the uh, tournament uh, the Thursday beforehand, you were putting Colette on the board. I remember we had a little bit of difficulty figuring out, okay, so Presto Changeo, what yes. all <laughs> does this do? Because it's one action that does a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So the, what this reads, so it's an attack action, targets willpower. So this is not a tactical action, although it feels like a tactical action. But so what you do is drop a ski marker into base contact with the target, place the target into base contact with a friendly performer within eight inches of both this model and the target, then place that performer into base contact with the dropped marker. So marker, move a person, then move the other person. So there's a lot going on there. Yeah, and all you need is an eight to make that happen and, uh, you know, to beat them, obviously. And it does have a trigger, uh, which if you're lucky enough to get it, you get a a bird if one's dead. So. But yeah, and uh, and the nice thing with that is that you can use it against your own models. It doesn't do any damage. So you can, you know, hey, swap around your models as you see fit. Or you can use it to kidnap an enemy model or get an enemy model out of position. Well, there was something fun that happened in our game, too. Remember how with Barkus, as we lovingly call him, uh, you, you can't place near him. So when I was doing a Presto Changeo in that game, I, I believe, we figured that I can put somebody out there, but I wouldn't be able to put them back. So that actually worked out in my favor where I couldn't actually complete the action because I kind of wanted everybody in that one spot. So, yeah, it, it gets a little funky. It's a, it's a very strange uh, attack action. But also remember, don't try to use it on something with um, laugh-off or planted roots, because that doesn't end well. <laughs> Unless all you want, I guess, is a ski marker, because that's like, if nothing else is happening, you're still doing an 8-inch away drop a ski marker, which is, yeah, depending on what right. you pick for schemes, is not necessarily terrible. So, no, that's super cool. You pick Breakthrough, so that's pretty handy. Yeah. Yeah, you got somebody who leaves somebody back. I know there's a couple people who like to leave like Soulstone Miners and like Shang, like leave them back on their half of the board. So if you get a chance, absolutely. All right. So um, during the game, what were some really interesting lines of play and key decision points that happened over the course of this game? Um, well, I mean, I've already addressed the things I did wrong, so you don't need to beat that horse. But one thing I thought that was interesting that I needed to work around in round one was um, his use of the Bandersnatch. Um, the Bandersnatch was not a model I was fully aware of. Um, and he told me what it did when I asked him. Uh, I did not realize it was going to bury inside me. I, I figured he told me it was going to bury, and I was like, cool, uh, I'll let it bury. And then it was like, oh, wait, it's inside me now. And it was inside Harada, of all models. So, like, you know, it was... Yeah, so he got he got his his you know uh, his fangs in me, I guess you could say, uh, pretty Ouch. pretty good. Um, and, and then I spent the rest of the game pretty much trying to keep him alive with stones. I think in that game, four of the five stones were used just to keep Harada around to round three. And even then, that wasn't enough because when I'm sitting here 
keeping Harada alive because he, he spent a lot of activations taking care of Harada. Um, but then he was also creating more with all these summons. So he, he was able to take care of me pretty easily. Um, but yeah, getting Harada into a better, better position earlier would have been uh, key for me because not only did he get the Bandersnatch inside Harada, he also pushed Harada back. Um, before he did so, using the web markers and all that kind of stuff. So not oh, knowing yeah. the Bandersnatch and how the Widow Weaver work um, was an error uh, for me. Um, I'm, I, I've been going through and reading most of the cards now, just so that way I have a general idea of what you do. Like, I also made a mistake last tournament playing against um, uh, Brian. He was running Terra. I didn't realize uh, Terra could target buried models. So I got, you know, uh, Jin oh, yeah. and Mizaki both buried, and he's sitting there killing Jin before Jin even activates. In turn, I'm like, oh man, like he's nearly dead. Like, what? Yeah. So I learned through experience, but yeah, I figured it out. Uh, yeah. So now I'm learning read the models before you play if you've got the chance. I love Bandersnatch. You know, there were some things during the game that I made mistakes, like, um, I actually, this was a, a, a transition uh, that I think is worth mentioning when it comes to people who are um, casual players moving into tournaments, especially when the meta is really aggressive, uh, like it is here. Uh, no hate on that. I love it. But they are pretty aggressive. Um, so I laid out my entire list before uh, the other master was even chosen. And I didn't realize that was a mistake until like after the game. I was like, wait, I did that. I was like, I let him know everyone who was going to be in my list before we even started. That was like in a casual game that wouldn't matter because, you know, we're here for fun. We're, you know, doing this. But, yeah, he was able to play against me perfectly because uh, I was dumb. Uh, so definitely learned, learned from that as well. Uh, so, yeah, keep your cards to the vest. Stick to your plan. Don't be a moron. <laughs> like, seriously, go go pay that Patreon. Go see this game. You'd be like, what an idiot. And also, also, like, to, to your uh, statement, it's very true. Like, the first time that you get you know, gotcha, or for lack of a better word, you yeah. know, you're like, oh, oh, this is what this model does. It always, it always ends with you losing the game poorly, right? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah. well, then I, mean, uh, I was devastated. <laughs> but, but, but then, you know, for next time, right? Mm -hmm. like I can, I can name a million things that like, I was like, okay, I'm safe. And then they do something that you didn't know could happen. And they're like, oh, well, I guess, uh, I guess I'm not safe. Hey, you know, <laughs> Travis taught me what Sensei you could do. All right, I just I remember that game. So, that game's like five, six years old, and I still remember that that whooping. Oh man, Sensei you, he just slapping me up. Next time we play, I need to bring a Bandersnatch with Marcus because that adds extra fun shenanigans. There. Oh yeah, because <laughs> he's a beast. Oh, don't do that to Devin, please don't. Oh, hey, hey, I accept it. Hey, hey, I am a big believer in learn the hard way because uh, it makes you better. I mean, back in 2E, whenever the the, the, the core meta, uh, those guys, like there were like five or six of us. Uh, well, five or six of them. I shouldn't put myself in that. I wasn't that good. But whenever they weren't in the tournaments, I would end up placing. I'd place like first or second whenever they weren't there. Um, and even sometimes when they were, I'd hit third, sometimes second. But uh, yeah, they, they, their their whoopings really put me in the shape. Like I got really good really quickly because of those guys just not giving in and being like, "Oh, hey, you're new, so let me like cater." No, 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 just play the game. Let me learn the hard way. Although that is unfortunately something that newcomers to the game should uh, should know is that sometimes there are those gotcha moments, and you know, it's I blame myself. I should have read the Bandersnatch. I don't blame Rob. Rob told me what the bottle did. He just left out one little part. 
and that's my fault for not reading it, you know? And <laughs> if I would have read it, then I would have known. But I, it still would probably happen that way either way. So, you know. He doesn't bury, he buries in your shadow. Yeah, but to be fair, though, in third edition, there's so many crews that are viable now, as opposed to 2E, where you had just the core crews that rose to the top that everybody played to a to a point that was uh, a little rough to deal with. There's so many viable factions and keywords now that you have to know so much to be competitive yeah. that you feel like a beginner for so long because there's you, I, I'm just like you, Devin. I have to learn the hard way. I got my butt whooped for the first two years from Travis and Dreads and that mm-hmm. whole meta just getting wrecked until I finally cut my teeth and was able to stand on my own two feet. And uh, it just takes reps. It takes learning the hard way. It takes reading and rereading and rereading and yep. still making mistakes. But you're absolutely and right. Rules and your players, you know, like, because trying to get around to how somebody's going to play, because you will start to see some idiosyncrasies in playing with the same opponent. Like they like to keep their hands full until about like round, you know, until like mid round or whatever, you know, you'll start to see those things. But even then, if they're playing a different master, like it, it's all up in the air, you know? So it was, it was really, I really appreciate going through all that with those guys. I thank you. If you guys are listening for all those games in the past, I look forward to the ones in the future too. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was a valuable lesson playing the game. It's a tactical game. You're not going to win every time. Um, and if you go on into the game thinking like, I'm here to win, I'm going to win. You're going to have a bad time. You're going to enjoy the game so much more. I, I like to look at the tournament as a ga- guaranteed three games. I show up, I pay my 10 bucks. I get three games. <laughs> Amen. You can't walk away. I'm going to play you. And if you leave, I'm going to be upset with you because I want to play. Yeah, of course. Obviously this was a one date loss for you. Mm-hmm. What was it that Rob did that? Because I mean, there's there's a loss, and then there's a one to eight loss. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What did? Because I mean, most of the time you're able to score a little bit more than that, even if it's you know feeling like you're getting dominated. It's tough to actually have that big of a swing there. What did he do that caused that swing, and what lessons did you learn from that? Um, the, the reason it, it ended one, eight, uh, 100% was overactivation on his part. Um, he, he, he could have given me all the past bottle, the past tokens in the world. It didn't matter because if I would have used them, he would have killed me before I could activate. And if I activate too early, well, then he just swarms me and kills me before I could do anything. So by turn three, I think we had already understood how the game was going to end. Because even though I did start marching my way back with Showgirl eventually to get that breakthrough or to start the breakthrough, I didn't have enough activation to be able to get her to do everything that I needed. She, I think she needed to disengage and then run, and then she was set up for next turn. But he had so many models on the board that he was going to chase me down. He was going to pick up my, my scheme markers. He was going to negate anything I was going to do because it was almost like three to one models at that point. Um, I'm exaggerating slightly, but like he, he was going to be able to stop anything I could do while maintaining what he needed to, because with covert operations being on that center line, he could keep half the team there. And then the other half could go run off and do what they needed to. There was no stopping his breakthrough. Um, I can't recall. Yeah, it was, I want to say the widow weaver he was using to run it, but he kept widow weaver in in round two, he kept Widow Weaver in the center to kind of stop Dorian and Harada. Uh, she was a key part in stopping those two um, with the Bandersnatch. Um, so, but once uh, Harada was gone, Dorian's you know easy to take care of with, by himself with especially those two, and then the extra summons that were around. 
it just came down to by by turn three after turn three was finished it we just looked at it was like all right i didn't get one in turn three for the strat there's no way i'm getting my breakthrough load them up you're just gonna pick them up every single time you know because colette was still around i still had uh i think two of the birds colette um and a porphy when we called the game um but he had like i think he summoned everything he could and like half his models were at full health so there was there was very little i could do in that game so writing was on the wall um i learned um that i have to come up with a strategy for um summon lists um because i'm still kind of learning the game i'm still kind of getting through some of those strategies uh i've been more focused on other types of lists and how to handle those uh where the summon list is not really a focus because I mean, dreamers like the best, right? You know, like I, I deal with Asami. Asami is the worst. So I don't really think about summon models. Uh, <laughs> you know, much. Uh, so when, and also he, he got to see, again, when I was playing, I feel like that the dreamer was a great matchup against me in uh, my experience with that that model, knowing that I wasn't going to be attacking very much. He, he probably was able to pick up on, on that given that, you know, uh, all I had was like Karada up there to, you know, kind of create that bubble and, and help the Corfis. But uh, he was able to take out a Corfi, or actually, did I have two? I can't recall because I'm mixed. You brought two Corfis. Yeah, yeah he brought two. That. So yeah, he took out one of the Corfis, and that was the one that kind of went more central. The one that he went right, he kept, uh, he left alone um, for the most part, and that that was the only like saving grace I had was that one Corfi off to the side. But Colette was on the other side of the board. Uh, I was I was too spread out. Uh, it, like it, it really is. One of those games, like I like I I know it sounds like I'm just making a plug, but honestly, if you're trying to learn, you can learn a lot from some of those stupid decisions I made. You you, you can see like why did you make this decision by by breaking down what I did wrong in that game. You will learn a lot for yourself, even if all you're doing is moron. <laughs> I can't believe you did that, I'm moron. <laughs> it sounds like you know, hey, uh, you uh, French fried when you stood a pizza, so you had a bad day there. Exactly. Yes. What was the MVP model for you and your crew? Um, well, I mean, I kind of bounced back and forth between the showgirl. Um, if she actually did what she was planned to, she probably would have been a little bit more successful. At least I might have ended the game 2-8 rather than 1-8. Um, but Harada really, he, he, he ate a lot of activations in the second and third rounds. So he, he's probably my MVP in this game uh, for round one. Um, you know, just because of all the hate that he got um, so quickly. and So just uh, soaked a lot of the damage. Then. Yeah, he, he soaked up a lot of turn two and three where he probably could have gone and gotten breakthrough a little bit earlier. He probably could have gotten load him up, started sooner. But he wasn't focused on any of that because he was dealing with Harada. And once he dealt with Harada, it was, it was hey, turn four or five, easily you can get your schemes because you've got so many models and you've stopped me from doing everything. So... But yeah, Harada was the MVP, uh, even though he didn't do very well as uh, as I would have liked. Yeah, could I jump in and, and ask about the showgirl and the decision? Because I have totally done that multiple times. I've got a model that I've kind of you know earmarked for a particular scheme or a particular strategy, and I get something pops up, and I'm like, oh, I'll do this other thing, and then I can go do the primary thing later. And it doesn't work out. And so that has exactly <laughs> happened to me. So what was your decision? Like, why did you why did you divert the showgirl? And could you dig into that just a little bit? Because obviously, in retrospect, it didn't work out. But at the time, it seemed like a really good call. I guess my thinking was this. Actually, now, now I am really breaking it down. I'm really thinking about it. 
I pulled the showgirl way to the left and hid her kind of behind a building. So Rob kind of even forgot that she was there. And that was kind of my intent because I wanted her to be one of the last activated models to be able to run past and kind of start her way towards uh, load them up, not load them up, breakthrough. So when I put her off to the side, she finally did make her appearance. She kind of like, you know, oh, wait, that, that model's there. Oh, and that's the one that's got the Arcane Wizard. Oh, I got to go get her. Like he, he knew from the very beginning he wanted to go get Showgirl, even if he didn't know what she was doing, just because she had that upgrade. He didn't want me to have extra cards. So in the very beginning, he wanted to go after her. I guess he forgot about her in turn one because I did a good job of placement. But then in turn two, when I started to said like, look at everything, I because I felt pretty confident in turn two. I was like, all right, here, I'm getting my, my strat guaranteed because like even if he does bring some stuff over here, I got this I could deal with. He's focused on Harada, so no worry, I got that. Where am I getting my strat turn three? That's what I started thinking. And that thinking stopped me from moving the showgirl forward because I was sitting there thinking, okay, if I got Colette in front of this far left strat, and then I've got the showgirl on the other side. If I start turn three with both of them together, then maybe I can defend this side a little bit better. And maybe he'll focus on the center and get that second cover on the center and maybe leave the side alone. But then when I started looking at some of those summons popping up even more and more, I was like, oh, wait, no, he's going to come either way. So that's when I started pushing the showgirl back up. And that's when he remembered that she was over there and that she had that upgrade. So it was, you know, kind of like I, I, I made a poor decision keeping her still because there was no value to leaving her there either. Like, you know, like keeping her near that, that strat was not the focus. She was a scheme runner, not a strat runner. I had somebody there already who could have at least defended it with, you know, the birds and she had the, her presto changes. She, she could have moved people around, but there was definitely no getting last activation with Colette given all those activations that he had on his side. So. Uh, yeah, it, 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 uh, it became pretty evident late in turn two that I wasn't going to be doing well, even though in turn two, the start of it, I was pretty confident. I was like, yeah, I'm doing okay. But again, that comes to lack of awareness of my team's models. Um, I did, I forgot that the dreamer was like one of the best summoners. So he was going to keep on summoning. Um, the, the, the widow weaver, I believe also summons, right? Yeah, she can. Yeah. So he's got two of those summons. Even if I went and got the dreamer, I still think he would have kept on popping out models. Um, but yeah, I forgot that the dreamer could do that so efficiently. Um, and then I didn't know the Bandersnatch and Widow Weaver very well, but I'm really happy to have played against that list. Cause, um, one of the early games that I had in 2B was against my brother playing the dreamer. I, I remember that was one of my favorite games to play. Cause I liked how the dreamer worked. And then I got reminded of that with this game with Rob. And then also got to learn about how the Bandersnatch and Widow Weaver work, which is great because, you know, I I've been wanting to play around with a Hinamatsu, uh, master list. And that was one of those, those were a couple models that like I had read clearly and been like, oh, they might work well and let's put them on this list, but I'd never played with and didn't know how they work. So it was cool to, uh, you know, lose to them so I can see how effective they are, you know? Uh, surprisingly effective, by the yeah. way. Oh, it was hard to deal with. It really was. I didn't realize I should have read the upgrade when it was handed to me. Guys, read your cards. Um, <laughs> uh, when the upgrade was handed to me, I did not realize I could target the Bandersnatch inside me. Because I didn't ask, so that's that's not on, on my opponent. I didn't ask if I could attack the Bandersnatch. Um, I just assumed I couldn't because it was buried. I didn't read my upgrade. I did a lot of really noob things. But like, if you don't know what you're doing, don't be afraid to ask. Rob would have given me more information if I would have pressed for more, I'm sure. But I wasn't asking it. And that's another thing about this this the Houston meta is that we're, we're really friendly. We will share the information if you ask for it, especially in, in, in tournaments. But you've got to ask. Or you got to read it. And I wasn't reading, you know, especially since I'm not really used to playing on the clocks. That's a new thing for me. Not, you know, knocking the clocks. I love the clocks. But part of the reason why I didn't read the model 
whether I'd upgrade, I mean, was because I knew I was on a clock and it was like, ah, all right, I, I can't, I can't target buried models. I already know that. So I just put it aside and just ignored it, not realizing it was a specialty berry. So, but yeah, I got to learn and that's going to be something I forever remember. And now, you know, and knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so we always like to ask, what is some advice you would give to a bottom third player? Someone facing uh, your crew or honestly, someone facing uh, the dreamer for the first time. And what do you think they should uh, look into and, uh, you know, learn? Uh, I feel like, because uh, this isn't something that I really focused on in the beginning of my 2E playing, I would just kind of show up with some models I thought were fun and, you know, put them on the table and then, you know, lose and realize that, like, I'm losing to, like, you know, keywords that like, are put together pretty well, like, you know, all my opponent's ends. Started to refine the list, but I didn't focus on what an unpack was or even question what it was until a long journey in to my Malifaux playing. Um, but learning what an unpack is and and what your list is doing in turn one to set you up for turn two is so valuable. Um, and I feel like it's one of those things that kind of like I, I've been actually saying to some of our newer players, like you learn Malifaux in stages, like phases, I mean. It's like phase one is learn the core rules. Don't worry about anything else. Just the core rules, your your models, the, whatever core model you've chosen. Like, like for me, it was Mizaki. So you learn Mizaki and you play Mizaki. That's all you play for like 10 games, just Mizaki. You want to change up the other stuff, cool, but play just her. And then learn what you want to do with her and the models you've been bringing on turn one. And then once you kind of move off of the basic rules and your basic starter pack or your starter master, then you can start looking into like what the unpack actually means. Like, and, and I'm probably not the best person to describe what an unpack is. So I'll happily lob this over to somebody else if they want to describe this, but um, knowing what you're going to do is very valuable. So I know it's not something you tend to think about in phase one or maybe even phase two, where I kind of feel like that's more learning the cards. So you're just reading a whole bunch and you know, all that, but in phase three, when you start thinking about more of the strategy, like, you know, Oh wait, I, I want to make sure I've got more cards in my hand and, Oh, uh, maybe having low value cards in my hand turn one is a good thing because uh, we always want to have the high value cards in our hand. But if you keep low value cards in your hand turn one and pitch them all turn two, you just made your deck so much better uh, in turn two. And that's not something a beginning player really thinks about and how your unpack might assist with that. So Unpacking is really, really important in corner and flank deployments, especially, especially by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you get so much further to move. Yes. So what is some advice you've got for a middle third player? You know, someone who's got some games under their belt, uh, looking to, you know, take that next step, as you were saying, you know, move up to another phase, as you were saying. Yeah. Um, So I guess once you've kind of figured out how your uh, models work and you kind of know what your unpack is, I guess next realistic point would be try to figure out why specialty models are put in your opponent's list, what your opponent's uh, list is trying to do, um, you know, maybe know what those models do. Uh, clearly I'm not in this phase because, you know, I'm not reading cards. <laughs> um, but this is something that I feel like I need to work a little bit more on. So I feel like this is where that middle third, I kind of feel like this is my jam. Like this is where I sit. I feel like I need to learn a lot more about how the other models work. And I'm going to learn that through repetition as we've talked about. I'm going to go get my butt kicked by different people. Um, in different models. And one thing I really like is whenever I'm, I'm trying to set up a game is I'll ask who their master is ahead of time. 
uh, for two reasons. One, if it's one that I've already played against, I might ask them to play somebody different, just that way I get new experience, uh, especially if they don't mind. And then secondly, just so I can read up a little bit on what they do, so that way I'm not spending a long time in the game trying to figure out what your models do. Um, especially in the friendly games that we're playing, you know, every Thursday, you know, in, in our meta, um, you know, it's really valuable to explore those different, you know, lists. And that even comes with your own. Like, you know, I, I haven't played every master that I own. So it, it's it's nice to be able to try them out while asking somebody to try out something new or just, you know, beat you up with something that you're not used to um, and then learn from it. Like, I, I only know how Zoraida works, uh, like, because I, I played Nathan. And he got to show me how, like, it didn't matter what I did. Like, you go ahead and do whatever you want. I'm, I'm going to do what I want. Like, it doesn't matter. You, you, yeah, you think you're in control. Go ahead. But that's, that's how that Zoraida list worked. And that was fun. I, like, it was a lot of fun to watch that happen. Because I was like, wow, in the moment, you're thinking, like, how can I deal with this? Like, I know there's a way I can deal with this. Maybe even with what I've brought to the table. But, like, how? Like, wow, this is, this is devastating. But like those moments are, are the fun parts of Malifaux, or at least playing those tactical games. You know, you, you find yourself in a difficult situation. You realize there's a way out of it. The game is designed it so. Like you might not have what you need right then and there, but like that's why you've got, um, you know, those swappable units that you bring in. Like, you know, I hear in 10 Thunders at least that uh, Charm Warder is a big swappable unit because they're very situational. But when they're needed, oh my God, they're good. So Model's so good. That model is so good. I have yet to play with it. It's something I'll I I hate charm warders, by the way. <laughs> Me too. No. But no. I hate them because they Ran are of fucking souls, man. It's not even that. It's the 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 that pulse tactical thing. bonus. The action. pulse thing. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, that bonus action's killer. Oh, here I'm going to make you burn a lot of cards in your deck. So if you saw they were flipping poorly in the beginning of the round, you have that go on in and get in the center of some stuff. Make everybody flip two cards. You might burn a lot of their high value cards. Maybe even burn a red joker. And I mean, and they take a lot of damage if you get lucky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, that's the that's the boot, you know. But yeah, trying to think about how, why certain aspects of the game are set up the way that they are is probably the level that I'm going to be moving up to next. Like, you know, thinking about how to deal with summoner lists. You know, uh, what and we got a couple really good episodes that are coming up. Well, I say we, like you know, but you guys have a couple really good episodes coming up when it comes to um, like hand management. Um, that's a huge one. Like knowing how to use your your deck to your advantage. Like activating certain models out of order of what you might expect. Like for instance, um, the Koinichi has that uh, tools for the trade or tools for the job. If you got a high value discard on top that sometimes she's activated, even if you don't really need her or don't want to just to be able to get that card back in your hand. Yep. So, uh, but yeah, working, working at that, that's pretty much where the mid third should be thinking is how can I maximize my play, learn more about what my opponent's doing and then merge those worlds to where I'm, I'm at least having more fun. I'm not going to say win more, just have more fun. Because if both of you are playing at high levels and, you know, you're both like really negating what one another is doing, that's the best type of game. Uh, you know, when it's a blowout like, you know, I had, that's still fun, but it's not as fun for both of us. Like, I can't imagine Rob had as much fun just being like, I'm just going to pound this guy into the ground. Like, oh, yeah. I can't imagine it was much fun for him. But it was fun for me to get to learn how that stuff worked. We also then like to ask, you know, what's some advice you got for top third players? Um, what do you wish you had done differently in this game? And what did you really learn from this game? So if I had to go and tell Travis what happened in this game, I would probably tell him I really wish that I stuck to my game plan and played the ways that you had shown me to play. Um, not saying that, like Travis is like my main go-to, just Travis did show me out a lot. Um, 
but yeah, no, I, I'd be like, I gotta, I gotta stick to my game plan. I, I can't change things up last minute. I gotta trust what I did. Um, that's what I wish I did differently. I really don't have any uh, advice for top thirds other than just keep on beating up us little guys. So that way we can get better and better and then actually be a challenge for you. Uh, because you know, that's, that's how we learn. Um, you know, I was growing up, my older brother who's like seven, eight years older than me would not relent when playing soccer against me. And I would hate it whenever I'd play against him because I'd always lose and do like go circles around me. But when I started playing with my own age group, I was really good. And that, that was shown by my brother beating me up in soccer, quote unquote, um, you know, to get me better and better. So I feel like that's a, a valuable thing for, for top thirds to keep on doing for us mids and lowers to, to kind of help us get better and better, um, make the game more fun for you as well. So I got I gotta say thanks for your modesty and all, but uh, but I don't know if you recall, but you you did come in fourth at this tournament, so, <laughs> so you're definitely in the top third, and and no seriously, and that that's coming back a ton of experience in two e, coming back into into three e, and uh, and jumping into it, and and maybe not performing as well as you want to or are capable of, but kicking butt and we would not have you on the show if you weren't uh, uh, up there. So, so thank you very much. And thanks for the modesty, but don't sell yourself short brother. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, since I still look at myself as like a, like a, a like an infant second time over, like, you know, I'm like relearning the game that I haven't really like, you know, got my legs back, haven't got the confidence, but I, I, I know I'm decent. Like uh, I, I know I I'm, I'm helpful to the, the, the truly newcomers that are coming in helping them out. I, I know that um, trying to like confirm rules that are a little obscure so that way I can help out people. Like I, I know I'm, I'm better than I'm, I'm showing here. Uh, but yeah, it just, you know, that game was, it is truly embarrassing, but uh, I'm glad it's out there. I'm going to have a little reminder so I can go back and go, look how bad I was. Look at that. I did, that. I did all those stupid things. Yeah. So. <laughs> I can't help but ask uh, Harada and Dorian combo. Were you able to live the dream at all this tournament with being able to utilize boring conversation and the uh, distraction or yeah distraction aura to to keep a model just locked down and just delete ultimately, or what was your plan on that? That that was a, a intention. It was not something I thought was going to be easy, so it wasn't the focus. Especially since the original plan was that Cassandra Angelica stuff. Um, in round three, I did lock down somebody. Um, with the boring conversation, I, I think I uh, ended up dealing three damage total um, to them uh, with uh, the misery uh, that Dorian Crow has. Uh, misery is the once per activation um, after a model gains uh, stunned or its opportunity, which is distract. Uh, this model can either move two inches or take one damage. So I think I got uh, in that round, once I got boring conversation up, was able to put distract two and stun on the same model. And that was pretty satisfying because it was like, oh, look at that. That's actually working. Like that was another synergy that I wanted to see apply. Um, but and it, it was a full intention in round one. Just I got overwhelmed too quickly. So that kind of went out the window. And gotcha. Uh, but yeah, turn round three, once I once I thought like the tournament was out, because like, honestly, I thought it was like out of the running. I was like, OK, I'm 100 percent here for fun. Round three, we're just going to you know have a lot of fun, try to get all the shenanigans to go off, like both shenanigans. Um, yeah. And actually, the board for round three was pretty interesting because the entire center of the board was uh, impassable. It was like a giant mountain in the very center of the board. It was it was very obscure, um, especially for guard the stash. So it's kind of like we needed to separate the crews, which I think worked out in my advantage, given how fast I can move people around. And I could even put your models on one half of the table and all of mine on the other if I really wanted to with Presto Changeo. 
So I feel like because of how the terrain was laid out in round three, I was able to do a lot better. Uh, I don't think that game would have ended the way it did. Eight, eight one. That's a that's a big swing. So there's a reason why I got that in that round three, and I think that was because of how the terrain worked. And my models were just so much more versatile. I was playing against a Lucius list in round three. Ah, gotcha. But yeah, no, I was able to see that shenanigans go off. I really liked it. I, I want to see more of it. Uh, believe me, I'm going to be playing some some more cola. I've got three more versions of the list that I've thought out um, that I want to try out. Like Carlos didn't make an appearance because. I'm always nervous about him trying to burn his buddies. You know, you can never guarantee when he's going to activate. So he was a reluctant choice. Uh, he was definitely on the bench, like first bench choice. But um, yeah, so I've got a couple others that I want to entertain. So I will be feeding myself more into the Arcanists uh, as time goes on, uh, buying up a little more of that once I fill out the 10 Thunders. Gotcha. Good stuff. All right. So any uh, plugs or parting thoughts there, Devin? No, just, uh, you know, keep on playing, keep on getting those reps in and you guys will get better. I know the whole intention of this podcast is to get better. Uh, it's going to happen slowly, one step at a time, you know, compare yourself to yesterday. And No, 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 the, the, the tagline is one game at a time, please. Understand the branding, god damn it. <laughs> damn it, I didn't get the memo. Oh, I need these things, like my cards. So I actually have a plug that I'm going to make here. Make okay, it. Go you for it. You cannot plug yourself. I'll do that afterward. Oh, no, no, Go no. Ahead. So I've, okay. this is actually kind of a somewhat announcement that by the time this podcast comes out, this announcement will be made in general other places there. So I'm about to start uh, really doing the big push for the Lone Star Fodown Malifo GT here in Houston, Texas, taking place uh, October 13th through the 15th. Sponsored by Top Dog Design, Heroic Scale Gamers, Dragon's Lair. Hell, I'll say Students of Conflict were sponsoring it because I can say that. Right. But yeah, so LoneStarFoDown.com slash events. There will be a link in the show notes. But the big, really cool announcement I have, because I just finally got approval for this, like yesterday or the day before, is that anyone who registers before August 25th is getting a cool custom fate deck. What? Oh, okay. Okay. Heck yeah. And uh, yeah, the artwork is really, really cool. Really, really sexy. I'll show you guys after we're done here. I'll drop it in the Discord. Nice. And the only way to get this is if you register... For the Lone Star Fodown Malifo GT before August 25th. Okay. Oh, I love it. That is amazing. Full information is in the uh, show notes. Uh, last year, it was bigger than I anticipated it was going to be. And this year, we're going even bigger. Nice. I loved it. It was fantastic. Yeah, it was an awesome, awesome. Yeah, I'm excited for it. I've never played Bonanza Brawl. I might actually have to try it this time. Oh, it's oh, it is delightful. It is so fun. It's a little tough to play when you're drunk. Just heads up. <laughs> oh, that was brutal. Or is it easier to play when you're drunk? Because then you just don't care. I was gonna say it works just fine. That that's true. The the problem is being drunk and caring, and then you just not do well because you forget stuff, and you're just frustrated because a half blood murders half your crew. That can happen. Stupid blood wretches. <laughs> And, and on that, that there is a pub in the place. So uh, uh, certainly yeah. that's part of the draw 
of uh, of the Dragon's, Dragon's Lair. Lair that we have there in Houston, but it is it is an amazing location as well as an amazing GT. And we have a hotel deal again for that is within walking distance of Dragon's Lair, so you can stumble there after you're done, which is great. I did last time I was there. It was fantastic. Yeah, ditto. Heck yeah. Well, that's going to be exciting. I, I encourage everybody to to sign up and utilize this incentive to sign up early because, my goodness, I think one thing that, that Doug mentioned in the past about early registration helps tremendously with the store, the planning, price mm-hmm. support, everything across the board. And, and I know as a Malifaux tournament player that I don't, register ahead of time like i should and i know a lot of other people don't so please we encourage you to to try to sign up early how many players were there last year doug uh it was 26 that's actually pretty good first year at the gate that was great i'm hoping for 40 or more this year yeah i think we are on that way and it was like yeah the 26 was the first one that we'd ever done or that you'd ever done rather you know and uh and so yeah i'm i'm super excited about this so Awesome. Many out-of-staters. Yeah, tickets are on sale now. Yeah. I'm going to go buy mine right now, Doug. Yeah. You're going to get yourself a fake deck. (laughs) But yeah, hey, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. I really had a fun time. This is great. I appreciate you guys. Awesome, man. And congratulations on, on, on your placement. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Students of Conflict is brought to you by Top Dog Design. Check out topdogdesign.com for all of your Malifaux terrain needs. Top Dog Design, 3D printable designs to enhance your tabletop. Students of Conflict is not an official product of Weird Miniatures LLC. All intellectual property belonging to Weird Miniatures is used with permission. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of entities they represent. Any content provided by our guests and or hosts are their opinion and not intended to malign any group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Woo! So, la, 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 scroll back to the things, because I am prepared with notes. <laughs>